0: Welcome to this WitKiefer podcast. I'm Greg Dyke, principal at WitKiefer, and today's discussion will be about managing and hiring your advancement team post COVID. I'll be your moderator, and in a couple of minutes, I'll introduce you to our phenomenal group of panelists who've agreed to address this important topic. First, I want to provide you with some background on today's session in our Advancement Conversation Series. As a leader of WitKiefer's Advancement Executive Search Practice, I was drawn to this topic for my 23 year career doing exactly the same work that most of you listening to this podcast do every day, raising money and leading development teams. As you probably know, Whit Kiefer has a 50 year history of executive search for a variety of organizations across the nonprofit and life sciences sectors. What you may not know is that our education practice focused primarily on higher education was in many ways built on advancement search. We've been a leader in this field for more than two decades. In developing the series, we wanted to combine our consultants' professional experience like mine with the firm's history and bring together advancement leaders from across the US to explore important issues and share information that you would find useful. We recently came out with a podcast hosted by my colleague, Mercedes Chacon Vance, who led a conversation about navigating your career post-COVID. We encourage you to go to our website, download this discussion as well, and listen to it when you can, as Mercedes did a fantastic job exploring a very relevant topic. Today's session will follow much the same format where I'll be posing questions to our panelists Now, let's get started. Our panelists today are three exceptional advancement executives, and we're thrilled they've agreed to to join us. I'll introduce them in alphabetical order. Monique Dozier was appointed the Vice President for Institutional Advancement and Chief Advancement Officer at Morehouse College in 2018. In just two years, she has led Morehouse to the highest single-year fundraising total in its history, $107 million in FY 2020. Sergio Gonzalez has served as Brown University's Senior Vice President for Advancement since 2017, where he's leading their $3 billion Brown Together campaign. Prior to this role, he led two $1 billion-plus campaigns during his 16-year tenure as the Senior Vice President for External Affairs at the University of Miami. Ria Turtletaub is Vice Chancellor for External Affairs for the University of California, Los Angeles, and has been a leader in the field of higher education for two decades. She has served in her current role for 14 years, including leading UCLA through one of the largest comprehensive campaigns in higher education history. The Centennial Campaign for UCLA ended in December 2019 and raised $5.5 billion. Thank you again, panelists, for agreeing to join us. And Rhea, let's start with you. What new or special approaches are you taking to manage and lead your team during the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: Uh, First, thanks for convening us. This is a really important conversation. It's a pleasure to do this with Monique and with Sergio. Um, To to answer your question, I have to say that those approaches that uh, others may be thinking about, I believe they're actually evolving. I think that the approaches that we took at the early stage of the pandemic, when our teams went home to work remotely um, en masse, uh, have changed somewhat over time. And I think that the notions of leadership focusing on uh, staff productivity and staff well-being um, have been front and center for all of us. But the well-being part was essential at the very front end of this, and making sure that everybody had the tools and the technologies to conduct their work at home. We gave out 50-plus laptops to staff that didn't have them uh, to perform their work at home. Uh, We moved 600 people. Effectively off campus uh, in matter of one afternoon, but with a lot of prep time, obviously. Um, and, and what I would say about the approach that's evolved over time is the way we are thinking now about the work that we are doing. I believe at the beginning, we left the offices in March and saw this in increments. Right? We assumed this would maybe be a six week experience. And then six weeks turned to June 30th, which then turned to September 30th. And in June on our campus, we were all given the, uh, the news that all non-essential employees would be home until January 4th. So we're looking at nine months um, total. And I suspect there's a good chance that it could extend well beyond that. So behaviors initially were in these sort of six week increments. Whereas now we're adapting and shifting and talking about, we've got to think about these as intervals. And we are now in the summer, um, starting to do the kinds of things that we've always, not starting, but working in the summer the way we've always worked. Not just sort of hoping we'll get to September and everything will get back to normal, but rather working through, as we always would, our operating plans for the coming year, taking into effect all of the changed conditions Um, But to recognize that come September when school, our classes, we're on the quarter system, we get back to class, class, remote class, um, October 1st, everything leading up to that has to be ready to go full bore the way we always do in the fall and to not now think that we're just going to limp our way until January. It's a changed mindset. This is really now about acceptance, not tolerating it but full acceptance of where we are. And so, um, focusing on staff productivity the way we always have, with some changed metrics perhaps, and we can talk about that more a little later, but the idea to to figure out that we are really in this for the longer haul, and um, to also though this summer, really encourage and push for staff well-being that people take a vacation. Whether or not they can leave town, whether or not they're going to go anywhere else, they need a vacation from their screens. They need a vacation from the space in their homes in which they go to work each day. People need to just disconnect and recharge themselves in ways. It may just be in the backyard. It may just be on the balcony. It may just be taking care of home projects that you haven't done that that other friends are doing because they have more time. Uh, we've got to encourage our staffs to restore, replenish, and refresh for the fall. So whether it's a weekend plus three days, I don't really care, but I'm modeling it for our team. And I'm taking the whole first week of September through Labor Day um, and two days even prior, the week prior to that to get a good long stretch away.
0: Good for you. And those are great insights. Uh, Monique, Sergio,
2: uh, what new approaches are you taking? Monique, I'm happy to refer to you first.
3: Okay, thank you. Um, I think for us, the most important thing is to make sure that the team, um, first of all, stays connected, um, stays uh, connected to each other, but also connected to our donors and our prospects. Um, we definitely are encouraging them to, and actually, we're, to be honest, it's been a little bit more efficient to be able to have virtual calls with our donors and prospects in terms of scheduling because they're more willingness as opposed to travel. So we are doing a lot more of that here at Morehouse College, just trying to make sure that um, as it relates to um, our work, which is as fundraisers that we're not losing touch or losing the momentum that we've gained um, here at Morehouse College and really and staying in front of and touch people. We all use our cell phones. I feel like in our business, frankly, that um, being remote since we traveled so much anyway is not as hard of a stretch as it would be for other parts of the organization. But we really want to make sure that as we're remote, that the connectivity is there.
2: So. So what I would add is I agree totally with Ria's um, comment that this is an evolu- this is an evolution and I'll I'll just share our evolution which is not dissimilar from Ria's, um, but I'll add a couple of things. Um, first and foremost, I defaulted and we can talk more about this uh, uh, um, when we went, went into remote working, into a, a over communicating uh, with team with our teams and I think a lot of us did that and frankly we we're resuming you know, eight nine hours a day, if not more, and and for the most part part nonstop. We felt that that was the, the we needed to communicate. There was a lot going on in the spring as as we pivoted, so I think that that was appropriate, and that's what we did. But but to Ria's point, I I the it's evolved, and you know one thing that I will say, I I think the balance as I think about going into the fall is continuing to communicate because I think it's critical for a number of reasons that hopefully we'll get into uh, later. But I also think it's time to, this has become now a more permanent mode of work. And I know in conversations with my direct reports, we're trying to find the balance, strike a balance in in thinking about how do we deal with Zoom fatigue? And I'll give you one simple thing that I'm doing and I didn't know how it would be received, but it's working. And I assume maybe some of our listeners are doing this. And as I pivoted for my direct one-on-one conversations from Zoom to back to traditional calls, uh, I will tell you, it was very weird the first time I got on a call, uh, which is how we always did things. And now we're back to that. But I think it provides a reprieve. It allows us to walk. It allows us to have healthier uh, inter- interactions. We can. Um, it, it brings a little bit more of a relaxation. I'm not doing that with all meetings, but I'm certainly doing it with my one-on-ones. And it, so far, it's been very well received. So I'll just add that one tactical thing that we're doing. But the broader picture is we're really thinking about, hey, we're gonna be working this way for a longer time. This is no longer a shorter period of time and that has implications. That's a great specific idea and a perfect transition to to a question for you, Sergio. What
0: strategies have you put into place to retain your advancement talent like like that specific example you gave? Maybe reflective of this historic moment that we're in, what specific measures have
2: you taken to create an inclusive environment
0: and retain a diverse workforce at Brown?
2: Sure, there's a lot in that question and you know, I, I look to Monique and, and Rhea and look forward to their answers as well. But let me just say a couple of things. Um, first of all, I mentioned communication. So the first thing that I would say is communicate, communicate, communicate. Obviously, I just gave the caveat not to over communicate as we move forward, but to communicate in different ways. Why do I say that? Because I have found and I think that in this uh, remote mode of working, which has a lot of positives. Um, Um, There is the the, the possibility that team members, including my direct reports and senior folks, can drift. What do I mean by drift? Drift in the sense not of a purposeful activity, but more that you're not, because you're not physically in contact with folks, you're not necessarily, you don't necessarily feel that you're part of the decision making. And I think that there's a sense of uh, and many folks who are high performers of wondering, am I really still performing at the level that I would like to be performing? And when sometimes you don't physically see your colleagues, you're not in some of the decision making because it's much tougher to do that in a remote setting. I think it's important that we co- communicate. That's what I, why I said that in many ways, I felt that overcompensating and really communicating. So I still did. I I had three uh, we three meetings with my direct report a week in zoom i 've now gone to once a week but um, for the reasons we mentioned, but I think that 's one thing The second thing is i don 't think it 's anything m- more different or different than from than what how I approach managing talented leaders and I think you have to understand your your um, uh, leaders and understand what motivates them and in many ways it 's about you know, as we all know, folks are, if they're fulfilled in their jobs, if they feel recognized, that they are, if you express appreciation for their work and they p- feel part of the team and the decision-making around the team, they will feel fulfilled. And that's, as managers, that's the greatest retention um, um, strategy that we could have. It's no different in this mode of, of work that we have now. However, what it does mean more tactically is more often communicating more often, being sensitive, Ria talked about, the balance between, you know, I start all communications with, you know, because I truly believe this is the health and well-being of our employees is first and foremost. It was at the beginning of this remote work, and it is now. At the same time, I talk about performance and making sure that our team is still performing because our team wants to do both of those, and that's the balance we strike. So, um, you know, there's a lot more there. We can talk more about it, but I just, th- those are some of, the, some of the ways that I think about this is, is, is not different in many ways than when we're in person as it relates to retaining staff. With respect to inclusiveness, with diversity, obviously, you know, there's, it's, it's, we have taken a number of different steps um, to make sure that our workplace is much more sensitive um, to uh, the horrible issues that have gone on in our country, um, you know, relative to education, relative to open spaces for conversations among team leaders and the entire team. Uh, we've created and expanded our diversity task forces um, there's an increased uh, desire from all members of our team, a significant number of members of our team, to be more involved in those conversations, um, no matter uh, whether they're folks of color whether, or not. And um, you know, so we're pre- pre- presenting those opportunities. We also have a number of diversity initiatives um, uh, for, uh, for fundraising purposes and engagement purposes at Brown. And we have created some metrics around that to, uh, pro- to provide some more incentive and motivation for our fundraisers to uh, to make some um, some some to have some greater gains in that regard. So I'll stop there uh, for now. But uh, those are some of the things that we're doing in answer to your question. Renee Kria.
3: Yeah. So there's a couple of things that we are doing here that I thought would be pretty um um or at least nuanced. We're holding a lot more all staff town halls, which, as you know, being a small place, you can do that with all faculty and staff. Our president leads those once every other week just to make sure that everybody can stay engaged, but then we're also staying transparent in terms of staying state of the college and folks have an opportunity to hear from our leader and answer those questions, uh, answer any questions that he has. And then within my shop specifically, I'm holding what we call house notes. So every Friday, it's for the entire advancement staff, we get together over um, orders, talk about projects. Um, I've, every, every Several different members of my team lead those, so we may do board games. They may just pick a, a movie that they want to have watch, and it, it isn't required, but at least it keeps the camaraderie. Because when you're working from home, frankly, we feel that you work harder because you, you don't get it into your day. So you you know you wake up in the morning and you go straight to work. Um, lunch is not a necessarily an option because everybody you know it's intrusive of your time. So being able to find those moments where you can just engage with each other. And just and in some respects, just debrief with each other has been very good. And my staff has really welcomed those, and they've gotten really creative with some of the ideas that we do, particularly during house moves.
1: I, I would just add that, uh, you know, in terms of retaining our our talent, you know, with with so many positions um, that are frozen, if we if you will, in some cases institutions are talking about hiring chills or pauses. Um, we need more people to step up and step into roles in order to get things done. And so we're actually creating opportunities for people to grow their skills and to build their portfolio of experiences that I think ultimately will not only help retain them, but you know at whatever point in time is appropriate for them, position them for that next opportunity. So we're taking advantage of you know when when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade right when when life says you 're not filling that position that 's an opportunity for somebody else um, with regard to the uh, an inclusive a more inclusive workplace, I will echo much of what Sergio has said you know creating more opportunity for people to get involved in um, in work groups and task forces around a variety of things that are meant to address our equity diversity and inclusion within our department. And then to help lead across the campus as well among some other administrative units and and I would say that particularly because we are so disconnected. This notion of building greater inclusion and greater belonging is something that everybody is craving and the the outpouring of willingness to get involved and to get deeply engaged in hard conversation, I think in some respects is easier in this format for a lot of people because they wanna be present for their colleagues, they wanna be engaged, they want to connect. And a lot of the conversation is hard and yet what we're hearing, in many ways we hear it from our academic uh, colleagues as well, that classroom participation, conversation participation for a lot of students and I think for a lot of our staff, people are willing to be a little bit more vulnerable and out there in this setting, um, which was counterintuitive to me for a while until I started to realize when people are vulnerable in person, you're even more exposed and it it begs the question, how do I respond to that moment? Do I reach out? Do I offer a hand, a t- a, a hand on the shoulder? Do I, how do I manage through that? In this setting, that's not possible. So what we're left with is genuine listening. And I think that that has been uh, one of the tools that's enabled our staff to really dive in deeply in this. And it's been really gratifying to see.
0: That's wonderful and, and good to hear. Uh, I'm going to share an, a question from the audience. Any one of you can, can feel free to respond. How do you, it's very specific, too. How do you hold firm on standards and accountability towards goals while being compassionate and empathetic in this time that, that we're in uh, and, and empathetic to your employees'
2: different circumstances? I'm happy to start on this one. Um, you know, first of all, I would say you have to be realistic about your goals. Um, yeah, we all, when we pivoted to remote and, and, the, and the markets and the economy started going, uh, going south, we, we all started wondering what the rest of the year would look like from a, from a metrics perspective for fundraising engagement. So first thing I would say to your question is, um, as we move particularly into a new fiscal year, is we have to be realistic with metrics. And that's the first thing we did, not only overall metrics for the, for the division, but also for individual fundraisers. So that's the first thing. Um, The second thing um, is, you know, if you have a high-performing team, um, as I mentioned earlier, I think most of your team members are going to want to perform. They're going to do well. And um, I think you have to create a balance for them. You have to create some space. I would start, and I have started since the beginning of this, really thinking first and foremost about their health and well-being. Um, That's it first and foremost. And if if one of the, in that balance of performance and, and health and well-being I err on the health and well-being side if there has to be, uh, if something is compromised. And, uh, you know, because these, if you're, they're high performers or they're people who you really appreciate on your team, you want, you know, they're, you're a family. You want to be uh, supportive of what, what they're going through and recognize as We all know that everybody's circumstances during this COVID-19 situation, working remote is very different. Um, so you really um, have to be flexible. You have to be understanding. Um, you have to be there for folks. But at the same time, we all want to perform, and uh, the individual wants to perform as well because they want to feel fulfilled. And when you think of it that way and you approach your management and your teams, in a ba- in a ba- you do that in a balanced way. You know, one thing that came, one of the questions, and many of you may have had this initially, the first question I got from one of my team leaders is Are we now that we're remote going to account for folks' time? you know, daily and they, they have to report on what they're doing. That was, you know, my, my initial reaction says, no, there's no way we're going to do that. We have to be really sensitive. On the other hand, you'll see, we'll perform and we'll find ways to do it and folks uh, who are motivated will do it. So that, that's, there's some, that's my thinking around that question. Well, those are good insights. Monique, I'm a, the next question is for you. Uh,
0: and kind of building on Sergio's answer, how are you and your team continuing to work towards fundraising goals in a budget-restricted environment?
3: So, as you mentioned earlier, you know, we've, we've had two, well, we've had two technically historical fundraising years, this one being the largest of 107 million, um, which, is, which is phenomenal because when I came to Morehouse, they were averaging about $13 million a year in fundraising, and I've only been here two years. Part of this, I believe, is indicative to, you know, um, not being aggressive with fundraising, making fundraising a priority, but also As being a part of a historical black college, there's a lot of influential people, I can name several of them, who just come to walk the place, want to get a picture in front of the Martin Luther King Chapel, say that they had stepped foot in the space where he had been, and yet they didn't uh, leave any checks. (laughs) We didn't ask them for any money. (laughs) So so one of my philosophies is, is that nothing is for free, so you can get that picture, but it's at a cost. Uh, I say all that to say is is that we weren't capitalizing on the treasure of Morehouse College and therefore we suffer by resources. Um, Given these times we have to be aggressive. I mean we want to and we will be, at least under my leadership as long as I'm here, we are planning to be in the one one billion dollar campaign space. That is that is not what HBCUs do, Um, but we will be there. Um, our, Our upcoming campaign will be 500 million during these times, I know we focus in on the health and well-being because of COVID, but um, we, being remote, given the racial inequities that are happening in the country, we can't keep up with the phone calls of people wanting to say, how can we support Morehouse from the partnerships, from the Hastings gift that we most recently received, from the uh, Mackenzie Scott that we received, from Oprah calling my cell phone, which I never would have thought would have happened in my in my entire lifetime. Um, this is This is a time where we should... Fundraising, um, we have great opportunities here at Morehouse, and, and we need to make sure that uh, those opportunities are netting them gains for our students, and that is our focus. Um, resource constraint, yes, but resource constraint to me means that's because you chose to be as opposed to that you have to be, and so given that we put a, a greater emphasis on fundraising, staffing, um, being accessible to uh, donors, but also being aggressively looking toward Uh, Philanthropic opportunities available to Morehouse College. Um, um, The resources will come if if the if the productivity remains. I will also just add. It's my final note here is if most of you know or some know, I'm a data scientist, so we really really do focus in on productivity as it relates to readiness. So. Mm -hmm. Although um, we, we do not fall short on building relationships because that's what it's all about. But we are looking in terms of modeling that we have built for folks who are closer to making a gift as opposed to those who are long ranging given our immediate needs. So we are really using data in our efforts here. Uh, we've built several different models to make sure that my gift officers have the opportunity to focus on the right folks at the right time to hopefully create some immediate returns in our investment and we're seeing those results while we still build those longer term relationships that will you know, sustain Morehouse College over time. So that, that, that is our approach to the work.
1: And, and I would add that one of the things I think we all have to be mindful of is helping our campus leaders recognize that their goals need to be really clear and perhaps redefined, but to remember that philanthropy doesn't fill budget holes. Philanthropy is an investment in excellence. So our campus priorities need to reflect that reality. Now, it may mean that we take certain sets of needs and package them in a way that that are indeed aspirational, but I certainly am experiencing a lot of academic leaders and indeed the campus leadership thinking that just turn to the development office and we'll solve this problem, this problem, this problem. That's not how it's done. We all know that. And so asking of our own leaders to be exceptionally forthright in reminding our academic leaders how they need to be thinking about what our role can be in a budget-restricted environment, because it's not just going to fill the hole. We all know that. We have to be bold enough to remind them of that.
0: So what you're building on that is a, it's yeah. a great transition to the yeah. next question, which is how can vice presidents and all leaders in advancement on college campuses make the case for hiring advancement talent in this current environment, which is so challenged? Uh, and how have you made the case specifically?
2: Yeah. So in many ways, Monique and, and Rhea have just made you know made the case. That's the first thing. You got to make the case for investment and, and development. And, and And in some ways, you know, we all know the rules have changed uh, for us relative to solicitations, in-person meetings, in-person events, and, but it doesn't mean that we, we all know, everyone on this call who's involved in, in, our, in our wonderful business know that we can still make it happen and we've made it happen. So we have to be true to ourselves first and foremost. I think the first thing is uh, recognize that we have pivoted. We, things like solicitations for large gifts on online are possible. Um, and, and, and in many ways preferred by our donors. And similarly, we have all uh, kinds of Zoom events and engagement activities and things of that nature. So um, that's the first thing relative to the budget issue is we have to be true to ourselves. We have to really think about what the year ahead will look like and really plan differently and recognize that change is gonna happen. But back to the the, the question, this, the immediate question about how do you make the case? Um, you know, and I think again, Rhea and Monique really made the case for this is you know, we are seeing that philanthropy is very much alive. We've seen that in the past four months in, in, in every institution. And to build upon that, we're going to need some resources, and we're in a relationship building business. So this is a case I make, and, and thankfully, my leadership understands it and is so engaged in this function that they really get it. Um, but, you know, we need people to engage people, to be able to make the case to support the university or to further engage with the university from a volunteer perspective. So that's the first thing. The second thing is fundraising is happening. It's gonna continue to happen over the next six months and we need to invest the resources. And if we lose a person or we have a vacant position that we need to make sure those resources come in to build those relationships or to have the virtual events, whatever the case may be, we need to, to make it happen. The other point that I make is that you know things will turn we don't know if it's it'll be in six months it'll be in a year but we're going to go back and i've been a firm believer in this and i've advocated internally for this that we will there will be a new norm where we will go back to a significant percentage or amount of the work that we did like we did it i don't think we're going to go back to everything we did um and we already have glimpses of that but we're going to go back and we're going to need the folks and as we all know hiring um, a t- staff and talented staff, and having folks move takes time. And if we're not ready to do that, the moment that we're ready to go again to the new norm, we're going to be behind the eight ball. And for those of us that are in campaigns, or about to start campaigns, or even finishing up campaigns, we can't afford to do that. We really need to be prepared. There's a ramp up that really needs to take place. So that's kind of that's how I make the case uh, among you know, and then using data, I think we find that. Uh, a lot of our academic leaders, in addition to what Monique and Ria said, I, I think showing data points about the importance of having staff, even in these times, is critically important. The, also the, one, one more is thing, oh, I'm sorry. I, one more thing, because no, I thought about this, Ria, is you know there, there can be a tendency, and I imagine some folks have this at, at institutions that th- say, hey, you're not traveling as much. Your folks are not as busy as they used to be. And frankly, that is not the case. And it's imperative upon us to make the case and explain why our folks are as busy as ever. Because it's very easy and very simplistic, you know, and appropriate for folks who don't know our business and how we've pivoted to think that we're just not engaging donors as much as we used to. Our teams are working, folks are working full-time and working just as hard, if, if not harder, in some cases. So we need to make the case to our finance partners at the ins- our institutions and our leaders so that they can see what's actually happening. Sorry. Right. Really. The, na-
1: yeah. the naive view that, oh, it's just cocktail parties and dinners, right. so you're not having those, therefore you're not performing, when in fact we've pivoted to doing so many more events to keep people engaged. There is so many, There are so many opportunities. But I, I also want to add that in addition to the data, to make the case, allies help significantly. And what I have found, and and we use this to great advantage, um, when what appeared to be a more uh, uh, strict hiring freeze or pause, uh, where we had to make the case for more uh, consideration to keep an open open position on the market, if you will, Um, the deans do not want to lose their staff And so I partnered with deans to actually speak to the campus leadership about why, no, this is not a position I'm willing to share with another uh, colleague. This is not a position, there is no top 25 school in the country that doesn't have a chief development officer. Um, And so together we made a case that, just as Sergio said, if we're not in the game today, we're gonna be behind when we come on the other side of this but more importantly, we need strong leadership and we need to go find it and it needs to happen now. We can't wait until the campus's budget situation is figured out one way or another. So it worked very well.
3: The only thing I will add here again, being in a, as a smaller institution was, my case was really simple. It was, who do you wanna be when you grow up? So if you wanna to continue to be the Morehouse College that raises $13 million, then the staffing model will reflect of mm-hmm. $13 million. Or if you want to be the school that raises 100 million dollars a year, we have to have a reflective staffing model. And so what I gave them was was what the schools um, both HBCUs, but also uh, liberal arts peers, on what those staffing models look like. And if you want to be in this league of fundraising, then this is what's going to be required and take all, And our job is to demonstrate the value and the worthiness of this investment. But it was very simple. If you want to stay here. We can honor that if you want to go somewhere else and be like UCLA and Brown and other institutions, then we have to invest in advancement.
2: Great Good for you. Can I, can I add one more thought? Because one thing that I think is important is that, I, you know, I said all that and we've all said similar things, but we also have to acknowledge that we have to be, uh, we have to be very vigilant of where there are cost savings for us in our shops, because I think that brings credibility and validates the arguments that we've just made when you interact. In other words, we went back and rea- you know, realized the significant savings and expenses because we weren't traveling, frankly. Um, so, you know, you have to meet halfway at some point. I, I know we have listeners out there who are saying, oh, that's easy. But, you know, I got, I have a financial, a CFO who's actually knocking on my door asking us that we, you know, pare back this. And so I, I want to acknowledge that because we're all facing that. But these are just some, ta- some things, some ways that we of approaching it that we're trying to share.
3: And I will add, then, that's technology. Because, again, we have a lot of disparate systems here at Morehouse campus that we are consolidating. We just became a Salesforce partner. We implemented Salesforce here in advancement. I cut out about $300,000, which may not be a lot for others, just in having these disparate and inefficient systems. Um, We were were also impacted by Morehouse's furloughs. I lost four staff members during that time. and others pick, are picking up the slack. So again, we, we're not immune to it, but we are also the investment that's supposed to continue to, uh, to, to net returns. That's one thing you can say about advancement teams is that for every gift officer, you should be guaranteed to get some return on that investment and maybe not immediately, but eventually. And so we're the best bet, particularly in these times when revenue, other revenue sources are shrinking um, we, we are the opportunity for the to to kind of balance some of those skills
0: Monique, you are singing my song when I was in your shoes, that was the best ar- argument I could make, which is where what investment are you going to make anywhere on campus it's going to give you eight, nine ten and, and, and when you're in campaign, twenty dollars for every dollar you invest in the advancement team, which is remarkable. Rhea, you had mentioned uh, you know making the case or talking to uh, a Dean about a, a chief development officer position. I'm just curious how would you assess? The current marketplace for advancement talent from where you're sitting
1: so i think that um i sort of think about that question from two perspectives one i think that the marketplace itself is i think going to be a little tighter for a while right we're all being asked to slow down hiring if not freeze and i think that financially budgetarily for our institutions this isn't a one-year or even a two year constriction of trying to reimagine the budgets the revenue streams as as monique was saying there a lot of those revenue streams are going to be constrained themselves, so I think that um, the marketplace in and of itself may be tighter, but as a result, the marketplace of talent may in fact be much larger, and so um You know, the supply and demand question is gonna come into play, but I think we are gonna find because of furloughs, because of layoffs in certain institutions, you know, every institution I think is trying to hold off on doing anything like that, but you know, we're starting with a five percent reduction on last year's expenditures, but that could grow depending particularly institutions, how state governments then apportion resources to higher education are gonna be very different in the next few years. So we're looking at this as a longer term thing, but I do think that um, the availability of talent for what may be a smaller number in the immediate future, a smaller number of positions is going to, depending on which side of the equation you're on, is going to be a boom or a challenge.
2: The only thing I would add, Greg, I mean, you, you have the expertise in this area, but um, like Rhea, you know, my initial reaction for vacant physicians was, well, folks may not be willing to move during COVID-19. They have families, they have to travel. Are they going to willing be willing to move? But I think in co- even conversation with you, you reaffirmed what Rhea just mentioned, which is, you know, there there, there are more folks out there because there are less searches going on, uh, potentially, that uh, may be looking to make that jump and make that move. So, uh, as a hiring uh, manager or hiring person in an institution, uh, you just have to, you know, be patient and make the case and and find uh, find the right person.
0: No, I think that's a uh, that's a good point to make. Dennis Barden is one of our colleagues at Whitaker and kind of a, a legend. Says, you know, if I were in a VP's shoes right now, I'd think about hiring because there are going to be changes. Unfortunately, there're gonna there's going to be a lot of talent in the marketplace, and that's what we're seeing is folks because they don't necessarily have. The dollars to invest in new talent and new positions and in search uh, and in conducting searches there might be folks out there who are looking to move after all uh which is uh, you know a silver lining to 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 the cloud for for folks who are looking to hire uh, and that, again, a great transition to the next question from Monique, which is, if you're considering hiring new staff, and we talked a little bit about this ahead of this session today, that you were kind of positioning yourself to begin to expand your staff going forward, do you think you'll, you're going to make any changes based on what's happening? I mean, assume you are, based on what's happening with COVID and the pandemic and all the other things that are happening. What specific changes do you see, either in recruitment, the actual vetting process, or packages you might put together to get people to move uh, to Morehouse?
3: So yes, so we are going to be um, increasing our staff by 50% over the next couple of years um, in phases. But what I see is in this time, because we're still gonna be socially distanced for however long that's gonna occur, but they have to be really motivated self-starters. There's not gonna be that interaction of time in the office where you're brainstorming gift officer to gift officer. They had to really own their work. Um, we will set up as many ways in which we communicate, stay together as uh, the best that we can, but the reality is that we're not together and they really have to be self-starters and motivators. I would also add that, um, but I would have I done this anyway, pre-COVID is technology is a must, so they can't be shying away from it. They got to hold themselves accountable to the use of technology, how to use it, um, take advantage of some of the offerings that we have available, and then, you know, if, if, as many of us say, when it comes to a discovery visit it, face-to-face, it, it could be a challenge within itself, try doing it on Zoom. So the point of that is that they really have to really want to be able to manage those our relationships with our key constituency and or make uh, building more relationships on, on the, house, at, at the house. So the customer service piece is, is paramount for me in, in terms of my hiring and the commu- and communicating uh, will be in the future for, for the positions that I plan to hire. Thank you. We, we are stopping our we set our goal for 100 million again this year. So
0: wow. <laughs> good for you, good for you. It's a brave new world might as well take advantage. Rhea, it sounds like you might be slowing down a little bit on your hiring side, but you may have some thoughts. But Sergio, are you? Have you changed your hiring practices or thinking about the ways that you're bringing on talent going forward?
2: No, I mean, as far as the practices themselves, obviously we're interviewing more folks remotely. The one thing that I would say is that as we move forward and we have regional offices, both in the Bay Area and California and New York, and in addition to here, at our main office in Providence. And you know, we're really thinking and talking to our leaders in those offices about you know, the hiring folks who may be more even more you know, remote fully uh, in the future. And that's gonna be an ongoing conversation. Um, that's the only other thing that I would add to, to Monique's comments.
0: So we have a lots of questions from the audience. And in fact, some of the questions have been, uh, have been re- kind of responded to in, your, in your, the answers you've given already. But there's one in particular that I'm going to paraphrase slightly, but because I'm a former fundraiser, a recovering fundraiser, as, as I sometimes say, I, I just want to ask it because I think it's important. Do you think in your shops that there's a way to authentically connect some of the things that are happening in the world around us? to issues like student access, to your individual institutions, to some of the research that's happening on your campuses, to other activities that, you know, I'm reluctant to say take advantage of the situation because that's not what you're doing, but recognize and reflect the situation that we're in and and possibly reflect donors' attitudes and their desires
2: to want to help. Are there ways that you're shifting and, and are able to do that now? Well, I'm happy to start, and and I think I probably speak for my colleagues here. We've all had and a good number of folks on our call today, and we've all had to pivot, and uh, pivot, uh, you know, we were in a position where many of us didn't even know whether solicitation was appropriate in late March or early April, and then we pivoted, most of us have pivoted to causes that were uh, more directly related to student losses and COVID-19 on our campuses and things of that nature, and more recently, we've We've pivoted to some of the racial injustice issues that, that folks care about. The only thing, the one thing I would say is to the, to the question is yes, um, I think that there's an opportunity. It's sometimes a little bit harder. We have to do it virtually, but I think we've all pivoted in one way or the other. Um, a lot of this is about listening and understanding your donors' and your constituents' interests, in addition to communicating your priorities. Uh, there's a big issue around, and we're having it now as we head into the fall which is do we go back to communicating and talking about our long term campaign priorities or are we still in a world where our donors are going to be more um, uh, prone to and more interested and have greater affinity to some of these issues that are happening in the world and on our campuses. And I think it's going to be a balanced approach and it's going to be individualistic, but we all have to be prepared to be able to do that through virtual means and the means that are we're available to us now through our communications with donors. So. That's how I, I kind of see your question.
3: So I'll speak briefly about this, but I'm in Morehouse, where I graduate uh, four or 500 African-American males every year. I have 2000 African-American males on this campus. I don't have a pivot. We are the story of what's going on in terms of the racial inequities, but we are solving for that in terms of what we provide. Our alumni is uh, you know, vast in, in, in what they've done and from um, leaders and in, in, in thought right in their fields, but also what they've done in the world to make a difference. That's what we are about. So for us, this is really for us to be, for folks to recognize what, what the value proposition is of a Morehouse College now and into the future. Um, as it relates to academically, we, we've been, we, we have a lot of things that we are doing. Um, and again, I think that COVID is forcing all to think about this, but as it relates to technology. So we, I have partnerships of purposes with all the four big tech firms, Dell, my, uh, Apple, Microsoft, Salesforce, for this purpose. So we can come together as a part of a global think tank to talk about how the transitioning of, of technology in this space, because when we even go back on campus, that the need for technology is, is not gonna go away, it's gonna be just as great. So we are doing a lot of that in terms of positioning ourselves. And, and again, just making sure that we're staying true to who we are, but, um, not limp, but, but making sure that everyone else knows what, what the value proposition is of my institution and, and, and why the investment should be made. Um, my president always says, and, and he says it affectionately, but where in this world would you be where there's 2,000 African-American men walking across the yard because most of those places you wouldn't want to be. So think about it. I am educating the next generation of leaders, and that's a powerful story. So our story resonates with the time, but it would have been been a story that should have been resonating in the first place. I'm not pivoting. I'm just putting a recognition to it.
0: Oh, that's perfect uh, and, a, and a great story to tell as well. We are at the 45 minute mark, but I'm gonna use my moderator's license to ask you one last question only because it came from an audience member and I love this question. I would just wanna end with it if you don't mind. So we'll, if we can add for five more minutes, uh, the question is this, uh, what's the best piece of management
2: advice that you've received
0: that you still use today?
2: So you want me to, I, I don't wanna always be first, but I'm happy to answer that one in, in, in here. My colleague. So you know, it's 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 interesting. I love managing and managing teams, and I, I, I would say I have several. I'll be very quick, but the first one is treat others like you would like to be treated, and um, that that's been my guiding compass uh, in managing. And uh, I think in this time that we're in, and working, uh, in, in this in this uh, pandemic, and the way we're working, I think that that's a good been a good compass for me. Um, the second one is hiring leaders. Um, you're only as good as the folks around you. And that's uh, and, you, know, you hire leaders and folks who are performers and who have the similar values to you, you'll be fine. Um, and then the last one, it's not about you. It's not about the ego. It's not about the leader. It's about the organization and the team. So you got more than one from me, but sorry. That's but- good. That's good. Uh, more nuggets is better. Yeah. I'll
3: just use my one, which is always be a, 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 a leader that can learn from others. Um, the, best in the, the best work comes from when all great ideas come together and form. So that is the one that I live by. I want anyone who works for me or works with me to know that this is our show. It's not the Monique show. And so we're in this together. And, and, they, and they need to not just hear me say the words, but exhibit it in, 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 my, in my leadership style.
1: There's a lot of noise outside before, and I was really trying to keep that down. But I had a a leader once say to me, you know, management and leadership is a lot like high priced parenting. And by that, I think what he was saying, and I got it right away, but that, um, you know, it's all about declaring and then modeling core values the way you would with your family. Um, It is important to remember that people. People are looking for guardrails. People are looking and will respect boundaries if you give them clear and purposeful direction. And lastly, that um, our staffs, very much like our families, will respond to challenges that are fair, that are that with to uh, praise that's really thoughtful and to expressions of gratitude that are incredibly genuine. And I think Sergio, you spoke to those things in the form of. You know how are people fulfilled, and I think that if we can bring those traits and those values and those characteristics into the workplace, the same way we would do right. How would you want to be treated, right? That golden rule, um, but but encapsulating it the way he did at that time always stuck with me, and uh, that's ultimately just going back to where we started. Productivity will come when we care about the well-being. Um, the health and welfare of our, of our teams. And that is the most important job of all.
0: What a great way to end our session. Uh, Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. But I hope that everyone in the audience will join me in giving our panelists a virtual ovation, at, at least. They did a fantastic job, I think, and I really appreciate. Thank you as well to you, our listeners, for tuning into this podcast. We hope this discussion has given you helpful ideas and strategies to manage and hire your advancement team post-COVID. Stay safe and best of luck.
4: Thank you for tuning in. We invite you to visit wikiefer.com to learn more about our expertise and leadership and view our open searches. You can follow Wikiefer on our socials, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, at Wikiefer but Kiefer makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and the recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. Reliance on the information provided in this podcast is undertaken at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Third party materials or the contents of any third site referenced in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, standards, or policies of WICIVER. WICIVER assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy or completeness of the content contained in third-party materials or in third-party sites referenced in this podcast or the compliance with applicable laws of such materials and or links referenced herein. WICIVER makes no warranty that this podcast or the server that makes it available is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. What expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.